three opening questions for you. And I want you to think about this sincerely and honestly. In fact, I want to ask you to think about the things I say today with intellectual integrity. I want to challenge you to put your religious pride, religious traditions, and the opinions of those around you aside. And you ponder the information I'm going to give you this morning between you, yourself, and God. And see what conclusions you draw. The first question is, do you believe that Jesus is a liar? I want you to think about it for a moment. The second question is, do you believe that Jesus was a lunatic, that he was crazy? I want you to just think about that for a moment. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that he is Lord? Because the reality is, the only logical conclusion that a human being can come up with is one of three. One is that Jesus was a liar. And that means the things that Jesus said about himself, that he was the son of God, that he was going to die and rise from the dead, and that he's the Lord of all, that he is God in human flesh. Jesus Christ actually taught that. It's a historical record. There's no debate about that. So either he said those things and he knew they weren't true, which makes him a liar. Most people would not say that about Jesus. Most people in all religions say Jesus was a good man, but good people don't lie. So that leaves the next option, and that is that he said these things about himself, and he really believed them, but they were not true, which makes him crazy. If you're uncomfortable with those two options, it's only one other option that a logical, rational, thinking person can come to, and that is he is Lord. Now, I've asked, and Pastor Mike and I have asked for the teenagers being here today because in public education... For a large part, you're going to be trying to be made a fool of, saying that your faith is foolish, believing in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, heaven and hell. It's fairy tale. It's myth, especially when you get to college. Thirty years ago when I was in college, I could not believe the atheism that was being un- unapologetically spoken from the podium. Thirty years later, it is worse than ever. And so I don't want you to grow up in church saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. Then you get to college and they hit you with, quote, evidence that, that rocks you, makes you feel like an idiot, makes you feel like a fool. You're intimidated by the peer pressure, not only the professors, but also your generation around you. And then you cave on Christ. I want to give you evidence today, historical, archaeological, medical Evidence to prove to you that your faith is not a blind faith. It's a logical, rational faith. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation. It takes more faith to believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead than that he actually did rise from the dead based on the evidence I'm going to share with you today. For those of you today that have fallen away from Christ, I pray that when you see the information given to you today, it will give you what Gary was saying That it will no longer just be mundane. It would no longer be routine. But you'll see once again what Jesus Christ actually did for you. That he 
was unashamed to die for you in public. So I challenge you, be unashamed to live for him in public. And then for those of you here today who don't really know what you believe about Jesus Christ, as I said, let the information speak for itself. And then I challenge you to have intellectual integrity regarding the information that you're going to see today. And I ask you to make a logical conclusion for Jesus Christ today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in human history. It changes everything. It proves that he is the son of God. Because he has authority over death. Critics know the ramifications of the resurrection. Therefore, they have tried to discredit it and disprove it for centuries. Look at what Paul, the apostle, writes in the book of Romans chapter 1, opening his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, 1 through 4. This is how he opens his letter to the Roman church. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask you, by the way, there's notes in your bulletin. Uh, If you want to take notes, this will be a very good sermon for you to take notes on for this information, for you to be equipped to be able to give an intelligent defense to the gospel or to share the gospel with a friend. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, do do you know who, who wrote that, what I just shared with you? His name was not always Paul. His name was Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a leading Jew in the religious world. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He was influential. And the church feared him. He was the leading persecutor of the church. It is not unlike what's happening right now on the earth. In fact, this week, Holy Week, Early Thursday, five shooters from the Somali-based Al-Shabaab terrorist organization swept through a university in Kenyan town of Garissa, shooting Christian students. They knew who to kill because they ordered students to recite an Islamic prayer. Those who could were spared. Those who could not were shot dead, about 147 students so far. This is what Paul or Saul of Tarsus, was doing. He was the persecutor of the early church. He would go into church services like this. The guards would come into this church service, would arrest us, and would drag us to prison. We would be tortured, and we would be murdered. And Paul was the leader of of persecuting the church. That's the man who just wrote the scripture I just read to you. What? happened to him it would be identical to one of the leading leaders of the terrorist organizations that are martyring christians all over the world right now the middle east it would be like the leader of a terrorist organization becoming a leader of christians to the point where paul wrote two-thirds of the new testament testifying about the resurrection of jesus christ what happened to him 
He was an intellectual man, a powerful man, an influential man. And he completely changed his story to the point where he himself allowed himself to be killed for his testimony of Jesus Christ. So the man who was leading the persecution of the church became the leader of the persecuted church. Wow. The resurrection of Jesus Christ took his teachings from being the words of a rabbi to the words of the Son of God. It took his promise of forgiveness of our sins to being a reality of the forgiveness of our sins. It destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and gave us the promise of spending eternity in heaven with Jesus for those who believe if it is real. So today I want us to look at the importance of the proof for and the power because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a letter today that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were pagans. They were not Jewish. They obviously were not Christians. They were Greeks, intellectuals, philosophers. They loved philosophy. Philosophy is two words. Phileo means love and Sophia meaning wisdom. They loved wisdom. They were also Gnostic believers. That means that they believed that the, they, they glorified the body, but they believed the true gift was the mind and soul of man, and the body was evil because it confined and imprisoned the mind and the soul of the human being. They believed that when a person died, they were set free from this, this, this entrapment. And they would go over the river Styx to the Elysian fields, where that is the eternal place of rest and peace. So the soul and the mind can be eternally liberated from this physical body. After many of them became born again, they gave their life to Jesus Christ, Paul then writes to them about the resurrection. That when you die, just like Jesus Christ rose from the dead... You will also rise from the dead. And this was the mistake he made to the Greek listeners. And you will receive a new body. This went so contrary to their Greek belief system that they began to reject Christianity. It was so ingrained in their culture. That for them to believe in the resurrection, they would need evidence. And the kind of evidence that would hold up in a court of law. They were the, they were the, the premier thinkers of their day. They prided themselves on being on the cutting edge of government, politics, and jurisprudence. So Paul, does it sound familiar, by the way? Does it sound familiar, that culture and maybe this one? Where they were scientific they were evidence-driven. They believed that intellect and rational and logic thought was superior. So Paul addresses them on that playing field to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what we are going to do. So we open up with the importance of the resurrection. I'm going to do this very quickly, and then we're going to jump to the proof, which will be the, uh, the, the meat of our, our message today. So Paul is now writing to this Greek-driven, philosophical, intellectual, rational, logical, 
Gnostic-believing church, the Corinthian church. And he writes this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, okay, this is when it really starts to get bad. Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him in, him in fact if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, which is the terminology that is used for Christians in the first century who died, they didn't say they died because they know it's just a passageway to the next life. So they say for the believers, it just means that you have fallen asleep. He says they have fallen asleep and Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. So the results of Jesus did not rise from the dead. Number one, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ is useless. Secondly, your faith is useless. Thirdly, the apostles, Peter, John, James, Matthew, all of the apostles are liars. Your sins are not forgiven, and you will perish when you die. You can see there's a lot writing on the proof of the resurrection, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. It proves that everything Jesus said is true, including that he is God. So let's move to the proof of the resurrection. You guys ready? You got your thinking caps on? Now, there were many theories over the centuries that have been presented to try to discredit the resurrection. So the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to take four of these theories and I'm going to use them as a backdrop for the actual evidence of the resurrection because it's easy to dismantle these theories with evidence. The first one is called the swoon theory. You'll hear about this. Uh, you know, most reputable, reputable scholars have repudiated this theory, but it keeps popping up in pop, popular culture. In 1972, the Jesus scroll was written. 1982, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail. 1992, Jesus and the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls was introduced with much fanfare by a well-respected U.S. publisher, only to be derisively dismissed by Emory University scholar Luke Timothy Johnson as he says this. This is the purest poppycock, the product of fevered imagination rather than careful analysis. Some critics say that Jesus didn't die on the cross, which is what the swoon theory is, that he just fainted from exhaustion. They believe that the cool, damp air of the tomb resuscitated Jesus. Or that a drug had been given to him when he was at the cross, when they put the sponge up to his mouth, that there was some kind of drug that enabled him to revive after they put him in the tomb. To, con to, convincingly refute, to convincingly refute these claims, I'm going to get a bit graphic. It's not for shock value. It's so that we can understand medically, physiologically, what Jesus went through to dismantle this theory as well as the ones that are forthcoming. So let's look at the medical evidence. Now, Lee Strobel, a former atheist, a graduate from Yale Law School, 
He was an award-winning legal editor of the Chicago, Chicago Tribune. His wife got saved, and he thought it was just going to be really bad from here on out. Because he was expecting all sorts of negative things to start happening. Yet his wife became more and more beautiful. And it was such an evidence to him, he thought, as a, as a, as a lawyer, as a journalist, as a scientist, he decided, I'm going to set out to see if science can prove or disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he flew around the world and interviewed the, some of the leading physicians, archaeologists, historians, uh, doctors in the world. He began by interviewing Dr. Methero, a physician. Listen to the credentials of this man, and you'll understand why his evidence is credible. He's a physician who has studied extensively the historical, archaeological, and medical data concerning the death of Jesus. Medical degree from the University of Miami, Florida. Ph.D. in engineering from the University of Bristol in England. Board certified in diagnosis by the American Board of Radiology. Consultant to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health of Bethesda, Maryland. A former research scientist taught at USC. Editor of five scientific books and written for publications ranging from the aerospace medicine to scientific American. Published in the Physiologist and Biophysics Journal for his work on muscular contraction. Do you think he's qualified? And this is his summary. This is what Jesus went through. First was, uh, forgive me, I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to stumble over these, the terminology of many of these. The hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. Hydrosis. The high stress. Remember in the Bible where it says that Jesus' face bled, like blood came out of his pores? That's a medical condition. The one I just tried to pronounce. High stress releasing chemicals that break down the capillaries and the sweat glands. The blood mixes with sweat and it sets up the skin to be extremely fragile and stretchy and thin. So that when he went to flogging, he would experience hypovolemic shock, which I pronounced that one perfectly. (laughs) I'm not going to try it again because that one worked. It's massive blood loss, not a little bit, massive blood loss, where many, many people who are whipped like Jesus was, if you saw the Passion of the Christ, honestly, Mel Gibson pulled back. The Passion of the Christ is about half of what he actually went through. Most people did not survive the whipping because of the massive blood loss. The whip was a leather whip with metal balls that would create deep bruising and contusions with sharp bones on the end of the whips that would cut and break open the flesh, causing the spine to be exposed. The shoulders, the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs were completely ripped open and exposed. These bones would tear down to the skeletal level, into the muscle, producing quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The third century historian Eusebius described it this way. The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Many would die before the crucifixion because of the massive amounts of blood. This causes four things to happen. One, the heart races trying to pump blood that isn't there. 
Secondly, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse, which is proved as he was trying to carry his cross, which will be uh, important uh, in a few moments. Trying to carry his cross. He couldn't even carry his cross because of this hypervolemic shock, the massive blood loss, and he fainted and had to have help carrying his cross. The kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left in the body, and the person becomes very thirsty as the body is craving fluids, which is why when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. Then you get to the cross where you have five to seven inch long nails that are driven through the wrist, which were considered part of the hand in that day. And it crushes the median nerve. It's the, it's the main nerve that's going into the hand to see what that might feel like. Have any of you ever struck your funny bone before called the funny bone? You know, oh, you know how much that hurts. I don't know why they call it funny. It's not funny at all. It would be like taking a pair of pliers and squeezing down on that funny bone. That's what it was like when the nail was driven through the median nerve and his hands and his feet. Excruciating pain to where the word excruciating was coined right then to describe that pain. It literally means out of the cross. That's where that word originated from. The shoulders immediately are dislocated when you're hung there. And you experience death by asphyxiation. The reason is when you're in that position, you inhale. And to exhale, you have to push up with your legs. That's how, you, that's how the crucifixion worked. This death was so gruesome that the Romans actually stopped using it. What happens is once the person is exhausted and they can't push themselves up anymore, they die. From suffocation. This produces respiratory acidosis, which is a person, once the person cannot breathe, carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase and creates an irregular heartbeat, so you die of cardiac arrest. Now, the hypovolemic shock, the massive blood loss, would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate, creating a collection of fluid around the membrane of the heart and the lungs. Now, this is important. Once that fluid collects around the heart, it's called pericardial effusion, and around the lungs, pleural effusion, it causes blood and water to surround the heart and lungs. So when the soldier punched him with the spear and water and blood came out, that was the proof that he was dead. Some would say, well, he didn't die, he swooned. Well, the soldiers would know, because what they did was, they wanted to break the leg, they would break the legs to expedite the death. So they broke the legs of the first criminal, broke the legs of the second criminal, they came to Jesus, and it says the soldiers were amazed that he had already died. Well, we know why he already died. Because Jesus said that he has the power to, raise, to die, to lay his life down, and he has the power to, to raise his life back up. So when he's on the cross and he knows that the penalty for our sins have sufficiently been paid, he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he breathed. And he willingly and sovereignly gave up his own life. Who do you know has ever told the world, this is when I am going to die. This is the actual day I'm going to die. 
This is how I'm going to die. And this is who is going to kill me. And then it actually happens exactly as he said. Then he says, and uh, by the way, I will rise from the dead too. And it will be in three days. To pull that off means you're a God. You are the son of God. That's why Paul writes, there's resurrection from the dead proves that he is the son of God. So these soldiers who are experts in killing, who are trained killers, marveled that he was already dead. You can't fake not breathing for very long. Jesus could not have fooled the soldiers, especially you can't fake water and blood coming out the side of your body, proving that you've had cardiac arrest. The conclusion of numerous physicians, including Dr. William D. Edwards, in the 1986 Journal of American Medical Association writes this, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So the swoon theory is ridiculous. So this brings up the next thing that critics will attempt, and you will hear this in college. You will hear this in school. You will hear this with critics and skeptics who want to desperately disprove the resurrection because, again, if, it, if they can, Christianity is dismantled. But if they cannot, Christianity has proved to be the only way to heaven because that's what Jesus taught. I am the way, not a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. That was his claim. He's not one in many ways. He is the way. That is why you must dismantle the resurrection. Or you're caught with him being a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. So they tried the missing body theory. Now, here's the thing about the missing body theory. Am I boring you yet? You guys with me? All right, here we go. No one, no one, critics, skeptics, no one is claiming that there was still a body in the tomb. Everyone's trying to explain why it was and is not there. Okay? Why isn't the body there? Now, I want you to show, I want to show a picture of a tomb that is exactly like the one Christ uh, was buried in. You see that stone there? I want you to understand that that stone is uh, about six feet tall, And it's about the same wide and two or three feet deep, and it weighs over two tons. And when you close the tomb, it rolls down a groove downhill and locks into uh, a little groove. And then you place another stone on the front end of it, the side of it, so that it cannot be moved unless you move the smaller stone first. And and the archaeologists say it would take about 20 men to move this stone. So, the missing body theory. Here's the first one. First of all, there were no guards. But history proves from other writings outside of the New Testament that the Jews bribed the guards to say that they fell asleep while the body was stolen. Now you have to understand. And then it says, and we will protect you from the governor. Because for the guards to have a prisoner escape, as a death sentence. So for the guards to say, oh, we fell asleep, now they will be killed. So the Jews at that time said, say you fell asleep. 
So we know there were guards there because the Jews bribed them to tell them that they fell asleep. That's historically uh, provable. So then they say, well, Jesus resuscitated and snuck out of the tomb. You're actually going to hear this. Some of you here may have heard this and you believe it. So I don't mean to be snippy, but it just seems silly. That means he unwrapped himself, first of all, which you can't unwrap yourself once you have been once you've been wrapped in, in, in the grave clothes and the spices, 100 pounds of spices put on you, when Jesus rode Lazarus from the dead and he came out, you know, Jesus said, unwrap him. You can't unwrap yourself. So Jesus, somehow the cool, damp air resuscitated him, and he, <gasps> okay, and now he's in the tomb and he's wrapped. And somehow he does the ventriloquist, not the ventriloquist. He does the Houdini, Houdini thank you. And he gets himself out of the grave clothes. Then, from inside, he's somehow on the smooth texture of that two-ton stone, somehow moves the stone, overcomes the guards physically in his medical condition, which I've already explained to you. The water and the blood has already come out of the side. He's already had massive blood loss. He's already had a cardiac arrest. And now he is going to overtake a garrison of Roman soldiers. So, let's say he did that. Let's say he actually did that. So here's a guy whose shoulders are dislocated. Massive blood loss. His back's completely ripped open so you can see his spine, his skeletal system. He's at least half dead. And then he goes up to his disciples and says, see, told you. <laughs> and this is going to inspire these men. To spend the rest of their lives and even to martyr them, telling the world, He is risen! And you can look just like Him if you put your faith in Him. <laughs> it's like this. It would be like this. Last night, I was studying for this message to give to you today, and my wife came in and said, There's a bunny in the middle of the road. It's been hit. She said, I even talked to it. So my wife stops her van with my 14-year-old daughter, Isabella, and they're talking to the bunny on the side of the road. She's out the window saying, are you okay, bunny? And the bunny's got a broken leg. It's bleeding out of his eye. It's bleeding out of his paw. And so she comes in and wants me to do something about it. <laughs> so I take a shoebox and my phone with a flashlight on it. I'm walking down Montecito Road in Ramona last night at about 10 o'clock looking for this bunny. And these cars are going by, and I'm looking for this bunny. I walked for like, I don't know, a quarter of a mile. Finally, there's the bunny right in the middle of the road. I cannot believe it had not been ran over again. And so I'm standing there with this light, and cars are coming. So I'm using my flashlight to get them to go around the bunny. And finally, I take a shoebox. I scoop the bunny up in it, and it's got blood in the box, and it's, you know, barely alive, I think. So I close it, and I walk by. So I'm in the garage trying to keep it from the kids. Can't keep it from the kids. Everybody knows there's the bunny in the garage. We put some grass in there, and we close the box, and we go to bed. And I said to Hope, this is not good. 
if we wake up on Resurrection Sunday <laughs> and that bunny is dead, this is going to be horrifying for every Easter from now on to eternity for our children. And you know what? My scientific wife, who, by the way, just won valedictorian at San Diego State University. It's all about me. She said, what would just prove that the bunny is not our Savior. Isn't that horrible? But she's a scientist. She's just looking at the facts. And then my little girl Ava this morning said, what if that's the Easter bunny? And this is the thought I had that relates to our sermon. My wife says, you will work anything into a sermon, won't you? It's not a very inspiring Easter bunny, is it? This, this little guy who's got a broken leg, blood in the box, barely alive, is the Easter bunny. That's horrible. We are going to take you to the wildlife center in Ramona after church, so just relax. Thank you, Amy, for your... I knew when I put it on Facebook, I thought, Amy is going to respond, and you did immediately. You're like, here's how you take care of a rabbit that's half dead on a road in Ramona. Only you would know that. Thank you. That's the body of Christ working together. So then they will say, I have to expedite here because I'm, I'm uh, chewing up our time. The disciples stole the body. Okay, this means again the disciples overcame the guards and they spent the rest of their lives. Now catch this. Look at, think, about, think about this logically. The disciples steal the body. They overcome the guards. They go into the tomb. They take the dead body of their risen Savior, who they know is dead now. They steal the body and hide it somewhere. Then they spend the rest of their lives deceiving the world to join a religion that's all about truth. And all through the New Testament, their message everywhere they go is about the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Like the Apostle Paul wrote, proved to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. But they all know that it's a lie. They're spreading a lie. That's why you have to conclude that all of the disciples of Jesus Christ were liars. Because they stole the body. They know he was dead. But they are now telling the world that he is alive. So be an honest person. Be a moral person. Be an ethical person like us. Then they allow themselves to be martyred for their faith. Now, Every psychologist worth their salt will tell you no one will be able to die for what they know to be a lie. So this brings up the next theory, and that is the hallucination theory. Okay, all right. They think they saw the resurrected Christ. Let's read what Paul says to the Corinthian church in the same chapter regarding In response to the hallucination theory, Paul writes this, for what I received, now remember, this is the man who was the leading persecutor, the leading terrorist of the church. This is what he writes. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. At last, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, meaning he was born out of due time. He was born later than all the other apostles. So this is Paul talking. I've already described who he is. Here are the appearances Paul just described. First, Jesus appears, and this is important for you to understand how this theory holds no water. First, Jesus appears to Peter, according to Peter. Then the 12 said, we saw him. More than 500 people at the same time said they saw the resurrected Christ. Then James, Jesus' half-brother, says he saw him. Then all the other apostles said they saw him. Then Paul said that he saw them. Now, that was just that account. Now, let's go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here are the appearances of the resurrected Christ in the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, the other women, Cleopas, and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, the 11 disciples and others, the 10 apostles and others, with Thomas absent, then Thomas with the other apostles, then the seven apostles, then all the disciples, then with the apostles at the Mount of Olives before his ascension or him going off into heaven where they wrote that they watched him float up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Now, in a court of law, you can put somebody in prison just based on circumstantial evidence. It's harder, but it's doable. If you have an eyewitness, you're in trouble. If you have two eyewitnesses, there's no way out. You have three eyewitnesses? What about 550 and then some? Eyewitnesses. They saw him. Not only did they see him, they ate with him. They walked with him. They touched him. They heard him. They conversed with him. The hallucination theory fails because psychologists will tell you a person who hallucinates, only an individual can hallucinate because it's only happening in their own mind. So then they say, well, it must mean that then it was groupthink. Groupthink means you guys talked about it until you talked yourselves into it. Okay, so you're saying that over 500 people in different geographical locations and at different times and with different groups of people all convinced themselves that they saw the same thing. First of all, it wasn't hallucination because you can't hallucinate and see the exact same thing that another person saw. But over 500 saw the exact same thing. And the group thing doesn't work. That breaks down because nobody is going to hang on to a group think under torture and martyrdom. These people gave their lives to torture and death, not denying what they say they saw. Then they say, well, nobody actually saw the resurrection. Well, detectives don't actually see the crime. They look at the evidence. Archaeologists don't actually, they didn't actually see the dinosaurs. They study fossils. Scientists and doctors don't actually see the origination of the disease. They study the symptoms. In the same way, you can study the evidence of the resurrection and come to a logical conclusion. Anthony Flew, who is one of the world's leading atheists, debated Dr. Gary Habermas, Ph.D., D.D., in a debate called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? The results were decidedly so one-sided 
by one of the five independent philosophers from various colleges and universities who served as judges of the debate's content, concluded that Habermas had won. And here's what one of the judges wrote. I was surprised, shocked might be a more accurate word, to see how weak Flues, the atheist's own approach was. I was left with this conclusion. Since the case against the resurrection was no stronger than that presented by Anthony Flew, I would think it was time I began taking the resurrection seriously. One of the other five professional debate judges who evaluated the contestants' argumentation techniques felt compelled to write this. I conclude that the historical evidence, though flawed, is strong enough to lead reasonable minds to conclude that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Habermas does end up providing highly probable evidence for the historicity of the resurrection with no plausible naturalistic evidence against it. Habermas, therefore, in my opinion, wins the debate. Now, Lee Strobel, the former atheist, the former legal uh, affairs journalist for the Chicago Tribune, said that after covering scores of trials, both criminal and civil, he had to agree with the assessment of Sir Edward Clark, a British high court judge, who conducted a thorough legal analysis of the first Easter. And this is what this high court judge writes. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, remember I talked about intellectual integrity here today? I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. So this leads us to the fourth theory, which is the legend theory, that people just talked and this became a legend. The problem with that is Paul's account, his letter to the Corinthians, was about eight years after the resurrection. Mark's gospel was just a few years after the resurrection. The first, actor, uh, act, the first chapter of Acts, Luke the physician who wrote Acts, which was his journal of his, of his journey with the apostle Paul, said that Jesus was seen immediately after his resurrection. So here's what A.N. Sherwin-White, the respected Greco-Roman classical historian from Oxford University, writes. It would have been without precedent anywhere in history for a legend to have grown up that fast and significantly distorted the Gospels. So do not believe what you see on the History Channel. It is utter foolishness. The conclusion from the Cambridge-educated Sir Norman Anderson, one of the towering legal intellects of all time who lectured at Princeton University, was offered a professorship for life at Harvard University, served as dean of the faculty of laws at the University of London, concluded after a lifetime of analyzing the issue from a legal perspective, summed it up in one sentence, the empty tomb then, forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. Students, do not be intimidated to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the halls of academia. 
men and women, Christians, do not be cowards. Do not believe that your faith is a blind faith. Jesus Christ did not leave us without evidence of his resurrection. God even says this in Romans chapter 1. All creation will be judged by creation itself, for creation proves that I exist. When you study it from a biological, physiological, uh, cosmology, when you study the sciences, they prove God. So do not be afraid. And this leads us to the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection will affect your life in three ways, past, present, and future. And we're going to come to a close with this. The power of the resurrection affects your life in the past and that as you look back at the empty tomb and you believe you are saved. Look what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say go to church. It doesn't say be a certain religion. It doesn't say give money. It doesn't say anything other than if you look back at the empty tomb and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which I gave you plenty of evidence to make a rational, logical conclusion. The Bible says if you just believe. If you just believe, you will be saved. And if you do, it affects your present dramatically. We experience the power of his resurrection in our daily lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at what the Bible says in Romans 8. Once the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will by that same spirit bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. I experience the power of the resurrected Christ coursing through my veins every day. I am on my knees a lot because I am drawing from the power of his resurrection. It sheds the love of God abroad in my heart. It gives the wisdom of God flows through my mind. The strength of Christ flows through my physical body. This is promised to you once you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. The risen Savior breathes His Spirit into you, and He lives His life through you. And then finally, your future. He was raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. Paul ends his letter, his argument, to this Greek culture, the Corinthians, with this scripture. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, not metaphorical, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then Jesus Christ, the Savior himself, said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Either Jesus is a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. And you can either bow your knee today 
or you will bow it when you see him. After you draw your last breath. The Bible says it is given to every man to die once. Not reincarnation. It is given for every man to die once. Every woman, every man, every boy, every child. And then the judgment. For those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That terminology the Bible does not use died for the Christian. Because you just fall asleep. And then you go on into eternity with Jesus. You will go to a judgment seat called the Bema Seat of Christ. It's a Greek word used in Roman um, uh, Olympics, which means the award ceremony. I want you to hear this. Every gift you've been given, every spiritual uh, opportunity you've been given, every day you've breathed, every dollar you've given, every prayer you've prayed, every mission trip you've gone on, every time you stood up for Christ, every time you shared your faith, you are going to go to an Olympian's Award ceremony in heaven and Jesus Christ is going to give you awards for standing up for him Did you know that? I am not wasting a day That will not be a day of shame for me I cannot wait to present to Jesus My life of service to him when I see him face to face. I will not be a coward. I will not back down I will not And I pray you will be the same kind of Christian. Unashamed, unembarrassed, unapologetic, not obnoxious, just bold. Bold as a lion for Jesus Christ. Look what he did for you. Live boldly for him. For those who have not given their life to Jesus Christ, what's reserved for you, the Bible teaches, John the Apostle, who again would have to be a liar. You read the last book of the Bible. It's called the book of Revelations where the resurrected Christ appeared to John. John knew Jesus. John was his favorite. John saw him crucified. Jesus told John, take care of my mom. They couldn't kill John. He wouldn't die. They tried to boil him in oil. Oil. Okay, This is historical, historically recorded. They tried to boil John in oil. He wouldn't boil. What do you do with a guy like that? <laughs> it's so insane. They, the, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and so then the Jews and the Romans gathered together. So what are we going to do with this guy? And they said, let's kill him. <laughs> so they put John on an island called Patmos, which is the penal colony for him to die, and that's where Jesus appears to him. Shows John the future. Shows John the end of the story. And John writes it. And it's the book of Revelation, in that he sees Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows John what's called the white throne judgment. And that is for everyone who has had the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ like you have today, and you reject it. What waits for you is for you to pay for your own sins, which the Bible calls eternal separation from God. See, salvation is a free gift. You don't get it by church attendance. You don't get it by church membership. You don't get it by giving money. You don't get it by being a good person. You get it by admitting, I am a big fat sinner. And I need my sins forgiven. I need a Savior. And the moment you will admit that and you ask Jesus Christ into your life, you 
breathes his spirit into your soul, forgives you of your sins freely, and he becomes your savior. And here's what will happen. When my dad was on his deathbed, he had come to the Lord. He was an atheist, but he had come to the Lord. And as he's on his deathbed, I'm looking into my dad's eyes. He couldn't talk. He died of cancer. He couldn't talk. But he and I looked into each other's eyes, and we knew what we, we were, what we were thinking. I'm going to see you soon, Dad. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? Do you know that when you die, you will go to heaven? Jesus promised you if you will put your faith in him. Though you die physically, you will be raised spiritually, and you will spend eternity with him in heaven because he is the resurrected Lord. Will you close your eyes with me this morning? I want to ask you today if you're a believer and yet you're soft and you feel like you've been intimidated, cowardice, you feel like you have been intimidated by your peers, by potentially where you go to school, where you work. Are you being intimidated into the shadows? Are you being intellectually mocked? I'm going to call you to come out of the shadows today. Quit being a cowardice Christian and decide, he died for me, I will live for him. It doesn't mean you've got to preach to everybody, but it does mean that you're going to live your life for him the way that he would want you to live it. With your eyes closed, if that's you today, you're already a believer, but you have your backslidden, and this, this message today has caused you to fall in love with him all over again, or you have been a weak Christian, and today you're drawing a line in the sand saying, no more, not for my, not for my Savior, and I want to go to that award ceremony in heaven, and I want to see him face to face. I want him to be proud of me. If that's you and you say, I am re-upping today, would you raise your hand? And you say, that's me. I see that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, don't, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Even yawning, you're raising your hand. That's awesome, man. Just be a Christian even when you're tired. Ask Jesus right now where you are. Those who just raise your hand. Say, Lord, will you please forgive me right now? And he will. Just say, please forgive me for being a coward. Please forgive me for allowing this world to press me into its mold so I will be accepted. Oh, I just got that from the Holy Spirit. Being accepted has been been more important to you than being a follower of Jesus Christ. You're trading in your relationship with Jesus for the acceptance of your peers. That's a trap and it's denying Christ. On this Easter, Easter Sunday, you are drawing a line in the sand and saying, no more, no more. Now, with your eyes closed as you're connecting with Christ, anybody here today that you are willing to cross the line and say, I have heard enough evidence today for me to believe in Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead, and I'm asking him, to forgive me for my sins, I'm making him my Savior today. It doesn't mean you're going to become a freak. It means you're going to become a follower. If that's you, will you raise your hand right where you are and say, that's me. I see your hand right here on the second row in your sweater shirt. Somebody else, raise your hand, anybody. Say, that's me. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ today. I need my sins forgiven. 
I need to know when I die where I'm going and I want to go to heaven. If that's you, will you raise your hand right where you are? Raise it high so I can see it. I see your hand right here in the black shirt. Anybody else? Raise your hand this morning. Say, that's me. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ, asking him to be the Savior of my life. Anybody else? Raise your hand. I'm going to wait just one more moment. The children's worker is going to be upset with me, but your salvation is more important. Anybody else? Right now, raise your hand and say, that's me. I am giving my life to Jesus Christ this morning. Okay. I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me. And I'm going to ask those that raise your hand today. Now, I'm not doing this to embarrass you. I'm doing this to embrace you. Many times Jesus called for those who needed healing to do, to make a move, to act, to do something. The Bible says this. When one sinner repents or when one person turns and comes to Christ, all of heaven throws a party. So right now, we're behind the ball. Because there were people who raised their hand in here today to give their life to Jesus Christ, which means heaven is already already throwing a party. It's already shaking and rocking up there. So we've got to be able to join them down here. So I'm going to ask for those that raise their hand, would you allow us to celebrate with you today? Would you please... Move out from your seat and please come down here and join me right down here so we can celebrate with you. And if you want to grab a hold of the hand of somebody next to you, you can do that and they'll come down with you. But please come down right now so we can celebrate you and then I'm going to release you. Will you come? Will you come on down? Just be bold. Just come on down. Come out of your seat and come on down. Be courageous. Come on. Okay, well, that applause was for you. So I'm going to pray with you then. That's okay, you didn't come down because you didn't want to. But I want to pray with you real quick. Receiving Christ as your Savior. And we're going to celebrate anyway. Just say this. Will you say this with me, church? Just say, Jesus... I believe in you. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I'm giving my life to you now. I declare that you are my Lord. And I'm unashamedly going to follow you all the days of my life. Amen. And everybody shout amen. Okay, it's later than it's ever been. I know that, but I don't care. So I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come down. And if you need healing in your body, Jesus is alive, which means he's still doing miracles. Prayer teams come down. If you need physical healing, you need prayer about anything, our prayer team is going to pray with you. For those that raise their hands to give Jesus, uh, to give your life to Christ, I'm going to stay down here. I would love for you to come down and let me pray with you, okay? And uh, I will see you guys next Sunday. God bless you. He is risen. Woo!